May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a good title for a sermon that I actually will not be preaching today. (laughs) Things changed. He might make a brief appearance, but a larger theme has emerged that relates to fatherhood, and we might better have called this sermon today, Father Love and Faulty Methods. Father is a word, a relationship that's understood very widely. It's an important element of human experience. At its best, Father provides an image of love, a protection, a provision, and care. It is security and nurture wrapped up in one. And Father is a good Bible word. In fact, it's one of the ways we are taught to think of the Lord Almighty, God the Father. Unfortunately, it is often misunderstood as well. Being a father means so much more than simply having a role in the production of a child. There are any number of children who grow up without a father, and to them the very idea is abstract, something they can only imagine. And then there are any number of fathers whose behavior in their home falls far short of what a father ought to be like. A person who fears his or her father is not likely to be attracted to a God who is described as father. And a person who does not respect their father is unlikely to respect a God who asks to be addressed as father. And so it is that this wonderful image, so important to our understanding of ourselves and of God, father, is unfortunately difficult for us to fully appreciate. One thing fathers often do is tell stories, and today we're going to hear a story. So once upon a time, and this time really existed, and these events really occurred, there was a king who had been king for rather a long time. And I suspect you're already familiar with David, a man who was a legend in his own time and remains one of the most renowned individuals in all of history. Our story takes place in the final decade of David's long career. Things are winding down, unfortunately, not nearly so happily as when they began. The day that a young lad armed himself with a sling to challenge the Philistine giant Goliath is a distant, distant memory an event long since passed into legend. David's days as a courtier and a warrior for Saul are also long gone, as is his time as a fugitive and leader of an outlaw army. All that happened before David became king of Israel, and then he ruled for 40 years. Forty years in which David had managed to bring a fairly strong central government to a squabbling group of tribes and regional overlords. Forty years in which the name of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, had been raised and praised throughout the kingdom. Forty years in which the borders of Israel were made secure against enemy invaders and the kingdom of Israel became a dominant player in the region. 
Yes, David had a long and interesting career, and those of you familiar with the stories of his life, and there are many, will remember that David is often described as a man after God's own heart. And you may also remember that David made some great mistakes. Not little ones, but great big ones. Not things like speeding too fast in his chariot or helping himself to more barley cakes from the bakery than he'd paid for. Probably did that. But David was on the hook with God big time for big ticket items, adultery, murder. God forgave David, but David was not spared the consequences of his actions. One cluster of sins resulted in the death of a precious infant. And because of his violence, God forbade David to even attempt to fulfill his dreams of building a temple. And David also suffered the heartbreak of discord in his own family. He's a king in control of his empire, but a man whose family did not always respect him or the righteousness that he claimed to stand for. So David experienced the deep heart pain of a father whose son rebels against him and everything he stands for. So David... He's such a curious combination of poet and warrior, of sinner and saint. He's a man to whom God gave a son, Solomon, who was the toast and the envy of the ancient world on account of the wisdom with which God blessed him. But David is also a father whose parenting methods will not be cited by any of the pro-family types of our age or of any other age, I would imagine. David is a man who would cry to God from the depths of his soul, and God would hear and respond to him. He's a man who danced with total abandon to celebrate the return of Israel's most precious worship relic to its rightful place. He's a man who loved and lived with full passion and sinned and suffered in full measure. Our story takes place toward the end of David's long and illustrious career. It's not a good time. Hard times have fallen upon the empire. And we have to go back to chapter 13 to pick up the threads of this particular story. It began with a problem in David's household. One of David's sons, his eldest, committed a very vile act. He raped his sister. And although David was furious when he heard about it, it says he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. And so David let that pass unresolved, uncommented on. It was not his finest parenting moment. The fact that David did not deal with it sat very poorly with another one of David's sons, Absalom. And a couple of years later, Absalom took matters into his own hands and arranged for the murder of his brother, the one who had raped his sister. And this struck another blow into David's heart. 
And from there on, it's a long and confusing story full of misunderstandings and miscommunications between a father and a son who have learned to fear each other, even if a deep love still burns in the father's heart. The situation deteriorates. In fact, it comes to such a pass over the course of a few years that the entire kingdom is threatened by an armed rebellion. It becomes a full-scale civil war. The king, David, commander-in-chief of the forces of the kingdom, his own son Absalom, the leader of the rebel forces. And it comes down to a final battle between two armies in the woods and hills of the disputed kingdom, and it leads to the death of the son of the king. Now, the details of that battle are recorded in chapter 18, and we heard a few of them read for us this morning. The father, the commander-in-chief, the old man that he now is, has been asked by his generals to stay in a secure city while the hundreds and thousands of soldiers march out to do battle. David wanted to go fight. Remember, he was a warrior, a macho man, if ever there was one. But his generals persuaded him to stay, saying that the enemy wouldn't care if they slaughtered half of David's army and didn't get David. You are worth 10,000 of us, they told him. And he accepted their advice and stayed, but it didn't sit well with him. As he reviewed the troops before they marched off into battle, he gave orders to his generals. And in the hearing of all his troops said, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Deal gently with the leader of the rebels, of the armed insurrection. This is not a commander-in-chief speaking here. This is not a king intent on preserving the kingdom he's given his entire life to build and to hold. This is not a macho man determined to prove he's the mightiest man of valor. No, David is way past having to prove anything to anybody about who he is or what's important to him. This is a father crying out for reconciliation with a son from whom he is alienated. This is a father feeling the pain of a relationship that has now gone awry and remembering his own mistakes as a father, how he was harsh when he should have been gentle how he picked favorites when he should have been fair, how he chose to defend his own actions when he should have repented and confessed his faults, how he sinned and brought disfavor, God's disfavor, on his household. Typical father stuff when you think about it. Our life situation is entirely different from what David experienced But the same bundle of dynamics still operate. We, too, fail to admit our mistakes at the opportune time. And sadly, all too often, it takes some unnecessary battle and the alienation of relationships before we are ready to be gentle, forgiving, and truly honest. Back in the forests of Ephraim, the battle is raging. It was a furious battle. 20,000 men lost their lives that day. 
The battle spread over all the face of the country, it says in verse 8, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. One of those victims, actually one claimed by both the forest and the sword, was the king's son. Absalom was riding his mule through the woods, and as he passed under a great oak tree, his head got wedged in the branches, and the mule just kept on walking, leaving poor Absalom to dangle, hanging, as the text puts it, between heaven and earth. This is not a good position to be in during the battle. And sure enough, someone from the wrong side was the first to come along. One of David's men spied poor Absalom with his head stuck in a tree and his feet reaching for the ground. What a find for the soldier. Here's the other side's commander. Your prime enemy delivered directly into your custody. The disciplined young soldier followed protocol. He reported his find to his general, to Joab, a longtime associate of David's, and Joab was every inch a military man, impatient with civilian-style government and eager to exert military justice with military force. Joab asks the soldier why he hadn't just killed Absalom and says he'd have gladly given him ten pieces of silver if he'd done so. But the soldier has been prudent. He replies, in effect, that even if he had a thousand pieces of silver in his hand, he would not raise his hand against the king's son. And he reminds the general of the king's parting instructions. And besides, he adds, if I had killed him, I would have had to face the king's wrath. And you yourself would have stood aloof. <laughs> Joab actually doesn't want to hear any of this. Uh, he turns on his heel. He's got no time for this nonsense. He took three spears, thrust them into Absalom's heart, and then ten of Joab's attendants surrounded the king's son and beat him to death. A dark deed in the depth of the woods. David might have told his men not to harm his son, but those of you familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba will recognize that David himself was guilty of even greater treachery and would have modeled a way of dealing with trouble that was more violent than compassionate. That's a sobering thought for fathers, isn't it? Actions do speak louder than words. Well, with Absalom dead and done for, Joab calls in the troops and allows the surviving armies to escape. The victory is won. The kingdom is saved. They get rid of Absalom's body, celebrate the defeat of the king's enemies, and think about how they're going to take this good news to David. Now, there's one promising young soldier uh, a real eager beaver named Ahimehaz. And he wants to be the one to announce the victory uh, to the king. But Joab tries to calm him down, knowing that the king is going to have at best a mixed reaction to this salvation of his kingdom. Instead, he assigned one of his mercenaries, an Ethiopian, and ordered him to deliver the news. Now, here is an unfortunate messenger Truth-telling 
can be a difficult and risky thing. And back in those days, if the king did not like the news that was brought to him, the life of a messenger was very much at risk. David had been known to kill people on the spot for saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and Joab knew that. The messenger knew it. But he obeyed his orders, and off he went. Ahimehaz, however, was like a puppy in his enthusiasm. He pleaded until Joab allowed him to go, and then he took off like the blazes, trying to be the first with a tale of glory and success to bring to the king. Meanwhile, back at the fort, David is waiting at the gate. An old man now, full of sorrow and impatient for news, And the sentinel on top of the wall calls out that he sees a man running alone. And the king knows that he's about to hear some news. He doesn't know whether it'll be good or bad. And even before the first messenger arrives, the sentinel sees a second man running, and David knows that he also brings news. And as the first man gets closer, the sentinel recognizes Ahimaaz, and the king says, He's a good man and comes with good tidings. And Nehemiah arrives breathless from the fast run and throws himself at the feet of the king and proclaims the victory of the king's army. The kingdom is saved and long live the king. But David doesn't take time to savor the good news. Immediately he asks after his son Absalom. And here Ahimaaz takes the easy road. He lies. He says, well, there was a great tumult, and he pretended not to know what had really gone down. And then the second messenger arrived, and he too proclaims the story of victory, and again the king asks about his son. And I'm thinking this messenger must really have been thinking while he was running. He was a diplomat an editor, if ever I saw one, for he found a way to tell the truth with words that minimize the chances of the king taking it out on the messenger. He said, May the enemies of the king and all who rise up against you be as that young man. May the enemies of the king and all who rise up against you be as that young man. In a single phrase, He proclaimed his loyalty and the truth. In my previous career, I was a journalist and all too often a messenger of unwelcome news. And I would pray for the kind of discernment with words that this young soldier was able to summon. And also for the courage to tell the truth. Because we serve a God of truth. There's no place for lying or ducking reality in God's kingdom. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the messenger in this story, but uh, we know that the king read between the lines of the well-crafted news release and mourned the loss of his son even more deeply than he would have mourned the loss of his kingdom, a son who by any standard of justice in that day deserved to die a traitor's death. But the love of a father for his son overrode any joy there may have been for the restoration of a kingdom. 
And it took days before the generals were finally able to knock some sense into David and tell him that he would have another mutiny on his hands if he didn't stop his mourning and allow his soldiers to celebrate. He had a victory to consolidate and a kingdom to run. He better get on with it or it would be worth nothing at all. And so David went back to work, but the joy of the job was gone. One of the many lessons we can gain from this story has to do with the depths of the bond between a father and a child. This tragic story demonstrates that the bond is deeper and stronger than the sum of our work. Uh, We tend to determine our self-worth by our jobs and our accomplishments, and we've seen that David was a man of men in this regard. He was Mr. Accomplishment. He was the king And he made the same mistake that many of us today make. He allowed the things that gained him success to get in the way of something that truly mattered. So by the time he realized he'd lost a son, the situation was too far gone. It was too late. He'd blown it. David, it would seem, had it all, the wealth, the power, family. He even had the good hand of God upon him but I wouldn't trade the remainder of my life for all the privileges he attained. You can read the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel and see that David's last decade was mostly turmoil. He had two more internal rebellions to put down, the second of which was led by another of his sons. Still, the Bible portrays David as a man of integrity but a man whose life was marred and scarred by his sin. He had the right passion for God. He had the right passion and hope for his offspring. But he was deficient in his method. Now, the good news is that God looks at the heart and accepts those who earnestly seek. He forgives mistakes makes it possible to turn things around, restores souls. But the bad news is that we typically live with the consequences of our actions. And the longer we stay stuck in patterns that are destructive to family life and the fuller joy of living that God really wants for us, the more difficult it is to be reconciled, to be restored. Scripture contains another story about a father and well-known as the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really more about the father than about the son. And in that story, the father released his son, gave him all that he was due, and waited eagerly and anxiously for his return. His method was good. His heart was good. He didn't begrudge his son the inheritance that was squandered. He simply rejoiced when he returned home. And that's an example of the right kind of father love, a love that releases and receives, a love that attaches to the person and not the behavior, a love that is righteous yet forgiving, a love that looks not on the outward appearance but on the heart. This is a picture of the heart of God, God, the Father, And it's a measure of God's love to us that he calls us children. 
calls us heirs. It's a measure of God's love to us that he releases us to make free choices about whether or not we will receive this love and its benefits or ignore them to live according to our own will and desires. It's a measure of God's love that he sent his own son to show us the way to live life to the fullest. This is the love of God the Father. There's a verse in 2 Samuel 14 that says, God will not take away a life. God will devise plans so as not to keep an outcast banished forever with his presence. God is in the business of reconciling people to him. He wants us to be at home, fully reconciled as children with a loving father. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear in our hearts the message of father love you gave to David. Help us to hear it, to revel in our relationships, to transmit your love to our children and our world. Your love is amazing. Amen.